It seems as if everyone is accused of being a liar today. You know, fact-checking has become a national pastime. And no matter what a political figure says, something can always be found in the statement that is deemed to be at least partially untrue, if not a blatant lie. Now, when is the last time you've read that what the president said may have been simply misunderstood, or that what some unnamed source has reported must have been taken out of context. You know, when is a change of plans or a political position seen as an appropriate response to changing conditions or new information and not just waffling to gain political advantage? The scarlet letter in our society is no longer an A. It's an L. How quickly we brand someone, especially those in the public arena, as liar. I find it ironic that in a culture where truth is relegated to my truth as opposed to your truth, and both are embraced as being equally true, we still have the audacity to accuse anyone of lying. But we do. Now, in polite society among friends, we do tend to soften that a bit. Seldom do we actually come out and accuse someone we know of being a liar. But in the throes of a misunderstanding, we often wonder about even a friend's truthfulness or question their motives. Chances are pretty good that has happened to you. It even happened to the Apostle Paul. In our text for today, we discover that his words and actions had been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Some in Corinth were apparently accusing him of being untrustworthy, of not abiding by his word, of being fickle and maybe even deceitful. Obviously, there was a problem in his relationship with the saints in Corinth, a misunderstanding that needed to be cleared up. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that if our brother has something against us, we are to be reconciled to him, to resolve the issue before continuing to worship. So how did Paul do it? How did he deal with an apparent misunderstanding in the church? Fortunately, he tells us what he did. And I think if we'll take a good look at what he did, we can discover a formula for successfully dealing with misunderstandings. He begins by making sure he has a clear conscience. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 12. For our pride confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, 
not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord. Paul's first step was to make sure he had a clear conscience about that which caused the misunderstanding. You know, much of the time, even if we're not totally to blame for misunderstanding, we are at least partially to blame. We've said something unkind or lost our temper or deliberately avoided someone. And if that's the case, we've got to make amends for our action. Even if we're only 10% or less in the wrong, we've got to try to make it right. We've got to have a completely clear conscience about the matter before we can go any further. And Paul did. He had a proud confidence in the testimony of his conscience. He was confident that his behavior had been holy and godly toward them. He hadn't conducted himself deceitfully with fleshly wisdom, trying to outfox anyone or take advantage of them. He had conducted himself according to the grace of God, seeking to give unreservedly to them. And he had written to them as clearly as he knew how. He hadn't written between the lines or used double talk. He had always been completely honest with the Corinthians and wanted them to be proud of the open and honest relationship they had. And if there was a partial misunderstanding between them, he assured them that it would be completely cleared up when the Lord returned and motives of the heart were exposed. So Paul examined his conscience and found it to be clean. And that's where we must begin if we are to reconcile a misunderstanding. But he didn't stop there. He didn't say, well, I've thought it through. It's not my fault, so it must be your problem. He went on to seek a resolution to the misunderstanding by accepting responsibility for it, even though he had done nothing wrong. Even though his actions were blameless, he acknowledged he did know what he had done that caused the misunderstanding. And he recognized how his actions could have been misunderstood. Let's read on. And in this confidence I intended to come to you, that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes and no, no at the same time? The misunderstanding apparently came over Paul's change of travel plans. 
In the final chapter of 1 Corinthians, he wrote that after going through Macedonia, he would come back to Corinth for a visit and would perhaps even spend the winter there. That he didn't want to just see them in passing, but wanted to remain with them for some time. He then apparently wrote in a letter we don't have that he had decided to come directly to Corinth from Ephesus. From there, he would go into Macedonia and then return for a second visit, giving them a chance to be blessed twice. But those plans were apparently scrapped as well, and some were now accusing him of not taking seriously his commitments, of saying he was going to do something and then not going through with it. Well, I think we all realize how disturbing it can be to have someone commit to something and not follow through. In fact, it's dishonest to make a commitment and not follow through unless there is a valid reason for doing so. And that's just as true when making plans with a friend, volunteering to do something at church, or making a business deal. And Paul admits he can see that it might appear that he was saying one thing and doing something else. That he was saying yes and no at the same time. Saying yes to, him, to, to them, but no to himself. But he wasn't. His relationship to Christ kept him from such. And he goes on to explain. But God is faithful. As God is faithful. Our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. There was no way Paul could be saying yes and no at the same time because Christ didn't. When he affirmed God's promises, he was in effect saying yes and his yes meant yes. And those who speak on his behalf mean what they say as well. Jesus, the one they represent and proclaim, doesn't lie. In fact, he is the fulfillment of all God's promises and therefore cannot lie. And just as Jesus brings glory to God by fulfilling his promises, so they, Silas, Timothy, and Paul, were obligated to bring to God glory by fulfilling what they said. Doing so was a way to say amen, affirming the glory of God's promises. Additionally, they and the Corinthians had been brought together by Christ. They were united by the same spirit, so they could not and would not lie to them or to anyone else for that matter. God is faithful, and the word of those who are in Christ can be trusted. Jesus' name is at stake in all we do and say, and our honesty 
should be guaranteed by that relationship with them. But it cannot be guaranteed until our conscience is clear. And sadly, not all who call themselves by his name do have a clear conscience. For as Jeremiah said, you are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. You know, a fish symbol on a calling card is no guarantee of Christian integrity. In fact, it might be nothing more than a marketing ploy. But as Jeremiah goes on to say, as for you, you know me, Lord, you see me. You test whether my heart is with you. And if our heart is right with God, our integrity is guaranteed. Now, Paul did acknowledge in Romans 12, 18, that in spite of our best efforts, it might not be possible to live in peace with all men. We may not be able to convince everyone of our relationship with Christ or of our resulting integrity. But we must make certain we do have a clear conscience. And once our conscience is clear before God, we should not be afraid to publicly state what is implied by our wearing the name of Christ. God is faithful to his word, and so are we, because he lives within us. Paul examined his conscience. He accepted responsibility for the misunderstanding, and he affirmed his relationship to Christ. Only then did he try to explain his actions, and notice how he does it. But I call God as witness to my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote to you. Lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. Paul very carefully and very lovingly now tries to explain what he had done. And why he had done it. He says that it was for their sake that he hadn't come to Corinth again as originally planned. As we noted last week, Paul had apparently already made a quick return visit to Corinth from Ephesus to clear up some problems, but had been unsuccessful. He then sent Titus to them instead of returning himself in the hopes that another confrontation between them could be avoided. He didn't like confronting them, and they didn't like it either. 
And he did not want to lord it over them, riding into town like some exalted authority every time there was a problem. If he had come right back, they might have just given in because he was an apostle. And he didn't want that. He wanted to work with them and was willing to help resolve the problems, but he also wanted them to personally seek God's direction. He wanted the problems resolved because they had sought God's will in the matter, not just because he had the right to tell them what to do. So he decided that neither would profit if he returned as he had planned. The situation had evolved in such a way that his coming would have only created more problems and more hard feelings. So he changed his plans. Instead of coming in person, he had decided to write them a letter, probably the one that Titus had delivered. And he had done so with much anguish of heart and tears, hoping they would realize he had done what he had done out of love. That's why he had changed his plans. He had changed them because of his love for them, not because he was trying to slight them or avoid them. And he wasn't being fickle. Not coming to them had been a conscious decision on his part. And he had made it with their best interests at heart. Apparently, they did understand his actions now. And as far as we know, the misunderstanding was cleared up. But Paul had carefully dealt with the misunderstanding and resolved it. Again, how, how did he do it? He examined his conscience. He accepted responsibility for the misunderstanding. He affirmed his relationship to Christ. And then he lovingly explained his action. Obviously, that would be a good pattern for us to follow the next time we are misunderstood. But of course, we can only do that if our conscience is clear and we have a solid relationship with Christ. If you don't have a clear conscience, before God, and a saving relationship with Christ, I invite you to clear up that major misunderstanding and to do so now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the wisdom we find in your word. We find passages that, that thrill us theologically and and cast a vision to heaven. We also find very practical passages that tell us how to treat each other and how to respond to the needs that exist, even within the body. Passages that make it clear that saints have issues sometimes, but they can be resolved if we come together in honesty and integrity based upon our relationship with Christ. May we never forget that everything we do and say is a reflection on you because we bear the name of Christ. We've told the world we're Christians. 
Help us to live that out in a way that is clear, concise, and can be trusted. Forgive us when we've used your name in vain, when we've said or done things that were not in keeping with your will or your character. And let us from this day on remember who it is we represent by everything we say and do. And let us have the confidence to assure those with whom we relate and maybe even have conflicts that we can be trusted because you can be trusted. Thank you, Lord. Search our hearts. Make sure our conscience is clear. And then use us as an amen to your glory. That's my prayer.